around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Shalom, Jano, and so good to be with you again. Wonderful to have you back. Before we even get into our psalm, Psalm chapter 5 is where we are today. Uh, I was just looking on your YouTube channel and I noticed there is a new video up, uh, Teshuva, Repentance, Returning to God. I just want to tell everybody, oh my goodness, the YouTube channel, if you haven't been there, you should go there, the the uh, information there. Oh, there's so much, but what is this latest video? I think actually it's an old <laughs> it's an old video that we recently found. It was something I did a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It was just found in the vault, so we, we put it up. <laughs> put it back up. Okay, no, fair enough. And uh, and there's one, and, I, and perhaps this is the same, another one that was found in the vault uh, was put on uh, three weeks ago, The Myth of the Resurrection, a Critical Analysis. Uh, that's a bit, little bit longer. It's an, almost an hour and a half, whereas Teshuva Repentance, Returning to God, that's about a half hour. But just letting everybody know, there is a lot of videos um, there by your fine self as well. That's the Jews for Judaism YouTube channel. Now, we are continuing in our series, exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking the questions, who composed the psalm, what is it about, and what was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition, uh, how does it apply to us today? Also, when applicable, we want to look at what uh, Christianity would have us believe about, uh, about each psalm. And how does it deviate from the original intent? Now, uh, Psalm chapter 5, I may as well read it through, Michael. It begins uh, similarly to, uh, to our last chapter, chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins to the chief musician, but this time with flutes, a psalm of David. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come to your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in the righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield." That is Psalm chapter 5. It's actually not that easy to decipher this um, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, there's no explicit uh, description here of what the context is. Mm. 
which we've had in some of the previous psalms, um, the Midrash, the rabbinic Midrash, tends to see this as a continuation of the previous psalms where basically David is addressing uh, the leaders of the rebellion against him, primarily Ahitophel and the other people who were basically working with his son Avshalom to mm-hmm. depose him and even kill him. The thing I find difficult um, is that in Psalm 4, we saw how conciliatory David became towards his enemies. And right in, in Psalm 3, he basically was afraid for his life and he's praying for his his safety. But then in Psalm 4, he begins to, as we saw last time, counsel them and urge them to repent mm. And to really pray for reconciliation and to have peace with them. But this one, there's no more Mr. Nice Guy in this one, is there? <laughs> no, Psalm 5, he seems to... Now, it could be that this chronologically maybe um, was earlier, possibly. Or, you know, maybe it, it's directed towards specific people that, you know, were sort of lost causes. Maybe in the previous Psalm, you know, there were some of his opponents who were more likely to you know, repent. And so, it's, it's really hard to sort of go in order here in terms of the sequence of Psalms if it's really about… Uh, if it's an extension the, of the situation with, with uh, fleeing from Absalom. I mean, in, in chapter 4, he, he's really saying, come on, guys, think about it. You know, see the sense in the situation. Stop mucking around. This is futile. But in this one, perhaps if it is an extension… They have not seen sense in the situation. The situation doesn't look like it's going to be rectified anytime soon. He's done with it. He's saying to God, look, these guys, no good, you know, and, and, he's, and he's lost his, I don't know if he's lost his patience with them, but as I said, there's no more Mr. Nice Guy. Now, one interesting thing I, and I'm sure we'll get to it in detail, but in verse 8, uh, we see David saying, I will pray towards your holy temple. Is that to suggest then that he is praying towards the temple because he's, he's in exile from the temple, would that be fair? And if that's the case, uh, might might that be uh, proof that this could be an extension of the Absalom situation? Well, don't forget, there's no temple during the lifetime of David. Uh, you know, there was sort of a, a temporary housing of the uh, Holy Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, it was one of the things that really uh, vexed David his whole life was that you know here he was a king that had a palace and he was you know always disturbed that god's you know holy ark didn't really have an appropriate house um so he he's probably you know referring here to the um you know the, whatever it was whatever the temporary housing of the holy ark of the covenant was um now it's interesting that your translation uh has something about a flute yeah is the word nehilot? So nehilot is similar to the word chalil. In, in Hebrew, chalil is a flute. So some people actually do take this nehilot as a kind of flute, possibly. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we know that there were different instruments that were used. I don't really know if they did have flutes in the temple, but um, that was one opinion that I saw that cited um, it, it's almost certainly a musical instrument. The, the most common explanation, actually, is nechilot, uh, is similar to the word nachil in Hebrew, which is a swarm of bees, believe it or not. <laughs> and so they say that this instrument sounded like the droning of bees. 
Now, I don't know if you ever listened to Eastern music yeah, from India, the, like Ravi Shankar. It's, oh, I love it. It's just popped right? into my head when you said that an <laughs> instrument that sounds like a swarm of bees, like a, like that droning sort of, now I've got it running through my head, and I love Ravi Shankar. <laughs> yeah, so that that has a similar sort of droning. Sitar. I forget. It, it, well, it, I'm not sure. It, it, it may be one of the strings on the sitar, but mm-hmm. it, there there is... Uh, one of the strings makes, you know, aside from the notes that are plucked, there is sort of an ongoing droning mm. sound. So that's usually the way in, in Jewish translations that, that it's understood. Um, some people, though, say that nechilot is similar to the word machol, which means dance. Mm-hmm. And it may, now I'm, I'm not aware, I know that in the Messianic movement they have Davidic dancing. Um, and we know, that David, <laughs> we know that David did dance, but in the temple proper, I'm not sure there was. There was no instruction, dancing. there was no book found on uh, the uh, choreography, <laughs> the <Yeah>. choreography <laughs> of David. Um, yeah, I don't think we have that. But, you know, it could be that spontaneously people did dance to the music, you know, but uh, some people think the Nechilot is related to dance. Mm. Um, An interesting explanation is that it's similar to the word Vayichal. Um, If you go to Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, where it speaks about Moses praying, Vayichal Moshe, he prayed, he supplicated for the Jewish people. So, uh, I think it's Sajagon who says that this is just simply a, a, a way of indicating that the major theme of this particular psalm is focusing on prayer, meaning that one of the things that, you know, that's happening in this psalm is it's very clearly uh, a lot of praying going on. Mm. Rabbi Hirsch, Simshin Rafael Hirsch, has a completely different point of view. He says, Lam Natseach um, is not for the performer or for the uh, person playing an instrument, but it's from the word netzach, which means victory. And he takes the word nechilot as sort of related to the word nachala, which is an inheritance. Mm -hmm. So the way Hirsch translates it is, to him who grants victory, which would be to God, right? To God who is the one who helps us attain victory, Regarding the inheritance, meaning regarding our destiny in life, regarding the achievement of our goals and aspirations in life. So, it's a very, very different way of translating this first verse. I mean, one of the things we see from this, I think I shared five or six possibilities, is that the terminology here is obscure enough to uh, allow itself to be interpreted in many, many different ways. Mm. But whatever it is, it's clearly a psalm of David. Well, I'm, I'm favouring, uh, you know, to the chief musician with sitars. In, uh, <laughs> in, uh, I reckon that's great. I would love to think that there's sitars playing in the, uh, you know, around the... Uh, that's beautiful. I mean, was it, now just remind me, wasn't Ravi Shankar playing at Woodstock? I, th- I think he may have been at Woodstock. That's another one you missed out on. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, you know, it's interesting. The, the reason I like that uh, interpretation is because if we're seeing this psalm, and, and it's interesting because there's no indication, really, as you're going through this psalm in the, in the, in the superscript on top or in the first verses, we don't really even know what's going on here. Why is he praying? What are his prayers about? And so, I mentioned that midrashically, they say that he's really responding to his enemies. And so, you know, the idea that this instrument is sounding like a swarm of bees, 
you know, that sort of alludes to, you know, being attacked by a swarm of enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it would be an appropriate musical instrument, uh, you know, to express... Reflecting the mood you know, of, the, uh, of the prayer itself. Yeah, very possibly. So, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, word because it's so rich and open to so many different possibilities. Mm. Um, so he he, but it's interesting how much this particular psalm is really uh, uh, one of the psalms par excellence that really focuses on just the act of prayer. And it's important to remember that the entire book of Psalms is really, when you think about it, it's different from all the other books in the Bible in that it's essentially Psalms is a book of 150 chapters of a Jew that's praying, that's speaking to God. But the book of Psalms is, is interesting, and it's, it's important because it's basically the, the heart of mainly King David, but it's really the heart of, of human beings crying out, addressing, speaking to God, praying to God. And this particular psalm, you know, is like, it, it's like, prayer is really popping out all over the place. Mm. And what's interesting is that there are quite a number of different terms that are used, expressions that are used for prayer. So, in the second verse... Um, he says, listen to my words, O eternal one. And then he says, consider my meditation. So, first there's a request that God listen to his words. But then he asks God to pay attention to or to consider his meditation. Now, meditation are not words that are expressed verbally. And so, Rashi states here something interesting. He says that there's really two it's, – it's, see, often – we've seen this before. Often in the Psalms, there's what we call parallelism, where the psalmist uh, will express the exact same thought just in different, two different words. Ways. Mm-hmm. But Rashi says, no, here there are two things that are really being said. One is that David is saying, listen, there are times when I'm able to actually express – my inner concerns and my inner feelings, and I can actually give word to them. I can put them into words and express them. But you know what? There are times when I can't pray. There are times when I'm overwhelmed. There are times when I'm so broken, I'm so empty, I can't even express in words what's lying in my heart. And so, the second part of the verse, he says that he, he, he begs God to pay attention to, to, to really consider the unspoken thoughts uh, that are inside of him, his inner utterances. Mm. And it's interesting that this is a, a major theme that actually will come up in the book of Psalms and in prayer in general, that there's an idea that really the more empty you feel and the more that you feel that you don't have anything, the more that you feel that nothing is yours and you're an empty vessel and you can't even articulate what you need because you just have nothing. You can't. You don't even have words. So that kind of feeling of emptiness and poverty and and brokenness uh, is really the greatest kind of prayer because prayer is basically the acknowledgement that you don't have what you need, mm. and there's only one address to turn to, and that's to the Almighty. Mm. The more you feel filled up, the more you feel that your life, you have everything that you need. It's hard for people to pray when they have their doctor and they have their you know, job and they have their iPad and they have their house and they have everything. We have so much in our lives. We have so much. We're so full we have th- that it's hard to even turn to God because mm. at some level we don't think we need God. 
So the more broken we are, the more empty we feel. And that's why in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 102, verse 1, right? It says, Tefillah Lo'ani, the prayer of a poor person, of an impoverished person. Mm. Because that's really the deepest kind of prayer. It's when the person realizes, I don't have, I, I don't have anything. I'm just empty. And in some way, you know, the, the most empty thing is when a person can't even articulate their needs. They're so devastated. They're so empty. They feel so broken. And that's why in Psalm 65, verse 1, I think it's verse 1, it says, that to you, silence is the greatest praise. That somehow, for a human being to just stand there in silence, a broken person, where the only thing they can really offer God are their innermost thoughts, mm. Um, that's very, very, very powerful prayer, even greater than the kind of things that you articulate in words. Uh, it resonates even deeper um, because there, you know, there's sort of an expression that the person really is totally empty, has literally nothing, and is really asking God, please fill me up. Um, and, and it's interesting because one of the things that we have in Jewish prayer is that we begin our prayer by asking God to open our mouths, right? The, 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 the formal Jewish prayer begins with, it's almost a prayer for prayer, meaning we ask God, please open my lips so I can declare your praise. Because the person acknowledges, what am I going to say to you, God? What I, I have something to say to you? You know, we often get tongue-tied in the presence of the king, you know, or the prime minister. We, we find ourselves tongue-tied. Mm-hmm. So, for a human being to be literally in the presence of God, speaking to God, you know, they would find themselves totally empty and broken mm. and, and defeated and and they, they they have to basically say god please help me open my mouth to even say anything to you mm. um, so that's really what's what's happening in the second part of this verse is that it's uh, a request for god to pay attention to really the deepest parts of who we are that just go unexpressed we can't even find words to express them and then david says in verse three um that the way some people understand it is that, God, it's to you alone that I pray, right? That I only turn to you. And in some ways, what he's saying is that, look, I may not even deserve your goodness and your mercy and your kindness, but he may be saying here, but at least have pity on me by virtue of what? By virtue of the fact that I only turn to you in my prayer, meaning I'm not turning anywhere else. So, I may not have much to offer you, God, other than the fact that my loyalty is to you and I only turn to you in prayer. Mm. And not only uh, to uh, his God, but to his king and his God. Which is interesting, by the way, because often you don't find uh, in Psalms those two words coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many descriptions of God, um, but, uh, and, you know, God is often called king, uh, especially in formal prayer. Mm. We, we always address God as king. Um, but, yeah, to say, my God, my King, um, you know, it, it, it may be unusual to have those two together here. Now, to have in, uh, in verse 4, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you. So, are we assuming that this is, in fact, a morning prayer? Well, it's interesting that um, there are some commentaries who say that this psalm actually was said in the temple in the mornings. And that's been, that custom is carried over in that when Jews enter the synagogue, uh, there's a custom actually to recite this verse. 
um, first, uh, the first verse that's recited is the verse that was said by Bilam when he saw the Jewish tents. Matovu ohalecha Yaakov. How good are your tents, O Jacob? Mm. So that's the, the, those are the tents becoming symbolic of our houses of worship. And so um, that's the first verse that said, as someone's walking into the synagogue. And this fourth verse is really this, this, is the follow-up. Now, verse 5, it, it sounds like a non sequitur. Because in the previous verses, it's been basically about David turning to God in prayer. Yeah. Now, verse 5, for you are not a God who desires wickedness. What is that doing there? I mean, what is, what's, why, what, what, where is this coming it's, from? Well, it, it's, it's really out of left field, isn't it? I mean, it's an exceptionally uh, dramatic change in mood and direction uh, for the next three verses. What I've got here, again, is, uh, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. So, we've, we've taken a turn. I think he's building a case. What prompted that? Right. So, so I, th- I think you're right. I think that this is the clue. This particular verse is the clue to what is going on in this psalm. Meaning, in the previous verses, you have a lot of praying going on, but you're not really clear about what David's praying about. You know, what's the what? What is? What are, what are his prayers for? What is he uh, dealing with in his prayers? You don't have any sense at all. And now, in verse five, you get the sense that. Um, this is why David was confident in his previous verses that God would answer his prayers. Mm-hmm. Why? Because God doesn't handle, he can't deal with wicked people. Mm. And so you get this sort of, a, it's indirectly, David is basically contrasting himself yeah. to those wicked people that God can't deal with and doesn't put up with. But it's strong language, isn't it? I mean, you're right, he's building a <laughs> contrast, which he's going to turn around in his favor, obviously, in verse 8. Um, but he goes on to say, for the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors uh, these, the, the, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This is as strong as words he could use, really, to say, you know, I, I, you know, because the, the next word is, but as for me, in verse 8. And so, but it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, in the Christian world, we often hear, Oh well, you know, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. How 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 do you understand this, Michael? Well, it's interesting because that's exactly what the Talmud uh, says. There's a very famous story um, from the first tractate of the Talmud, Brachot, ten a, page ten, side a. Uh, they say that in the neighborhood of Rabbi Meir. There were these highwaymen, these brigands, these ruffians, I don't know what you'd call them. They were troublemakers, and they caused him a lot of trouble. So the Talmud says that he prayed for them to die. Um, you know, he, David doesn't directly say here they should die, but he's basically saying God should deal with them. And mm. you, know, you don't think that it, you know, they're going to get a cushy you know, jail to cell. No. So... Um, in the Talmud, Rabbi Meir prays for these people to die, and his wife uh, basically takes him to task. And his wife says, how can you say a prayer like that? You know, are you basing your prayer, she asks him, on the verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 104, verse 35, which says, Yitamu chatayim in haaretz, let sins be ended or desist or be wiped out from the earth. And she points out to him, it doesn't say let sinners be wiped out from the earth. It says let sins 
be wiped out from mm-hmm. the earth. And she says that if you look at the, the end of that particular verse, it says, Urishayim od enam. And that once the sins will be wiped out from the earth, then the wicked people will no longer be because they won't be wicked anymore. Meaning that if the sins are basically wiped out because the sinners have stopped doing them, if they repent, then they won't be wicked anymore. So she urges him not to pray for the, the destruction, for the death of the wicked, but that they stop sinning. And so he takes yeah. her advice. Okay, but does that, yeah, okay, but does that fly in the Torah? I mean, really, when... uh, I think so. Look at what happens with Abraham, right? In the very beginning, God wants to wipe out, you know, Sodom and Amorah and Adam and Sodom. And Abraham says, what are you doing? You know, he, he, he says, you can't kill them all. Should, no, but he says, should the, should the righteous peri- perish with the wicked? Ah, so what's interesting is, right, what, what you would think that he would say after that is, look, God, you're going to kill the righteous with the wicked? So you would think that he would next say, look, if there are 50 righteous people in those cities, hmm. so take out the righteous people and kill all the bad ones. I mean, it sounds like his line of reasoning is, you can't kill the righteous with the wicked. That's not right. That's not righteous. Far be it from you, is what he says. Right. Shall the judge of the whole world not do justice? Mm. So, he says, what if there are 50 righteous people in those cities? So, you would think that his next line would be, so let those 50 people go and then kill everybody else. He says, no. (laughs) He says, if there are 50 righteous people, you have to save the whole city. Everybody gets saved. Yeah, but but, he's pleading. (laughs) He's pleading not for the destruction of the wicked. He's basically pleading, like in Ezekiel chapter 18, that God doesn't want the destruction of the wicked. He wants them to turn from their sins. And yet, and so, yet those, who, those who were considered uh, worthy of being um, – I, I mean, look, the, we, there was only four, and, uh, and they were taken. <laughs> they were removed from the situation, and the city was destroyed. But but you're saying that that's not our call and that's that shouldn't be our prayer. Is that is that what you're? I th- I think that yes. I think that uh, the ethos, I w- let's call it, or mm. the the you know the sensitivity of the, that at least I walk away with from the Tanakh is that our calling is not for uh, the death of r- wicked people. Mm. I think that the message of the Tanakh is that our calling should be that they change, that they repent. Um, now, if there are people who are unrepentant and they resist every possible opportunity they've had to repent and they persist in, in, in doing evil, you know, then, you know, uh, what can you do? You've, well, done, you've done what you can do. But, but in, this case, um, in this case, anyhow, Michael, we're talking about fellow Jews in this particular um, uh, in verses 5, 6, and 7, we're talking about Jews that are potentially part of the, well, or, well, if we're to understand this as a continuation of the story of Absalom, then we're talking about uh, Jews. But uh, if we leave it open, then I guess perhaps we're not. Yeah, I, th- I think that certainly, you know, if we're talking about fellow Jews, the default position would be to pray for their mm. uh, repentance. Mm. And I would, I would suggest that by extension, um, I think that the the thrust of the Tanakh is that in general, uh, you know, we know that God Himself He's not bloodthirsty, looking to just kill people left and right. Mm. He, you know, gives people every chance to repent. You know, that was you know the message in the story of of Jonah in the book of Jonah. Mm. 
um, you know, throughout the Tanakh, that's the default position is that mm. people, God is patient with people. He gives them every chance to repent and, you know, doing away with them is a last resort. Um, it's interesting that according to some of the commentaries, um, you know, you have this story of, of Pharaoh's hard, heart being hardened by God. You know, it's a complicated uh, chapter. I mean, there are different approaches to what it means that God hardened his heart. But Maimonides takes the view that, you know, if you look carefully at the language, he hardens his own heart in the beginning. Mm. And it's only after that that God begins to harden his heart. And Maimonides says that, you know, the, the option of repenting, you know, and basically uh, changing your, your, your direction you know, it doesn't go on forever. Maimonides says that if a person continually resists every opportunity to change and to repent, um, it, it becomes a joke after a while, mm. meaning that it's sort of an abuse of that. I mean, it's, it's an incredible kindness on the part of God because the truth is that, you know, as the scripture itself says, that, that if a person sins against God, they deserve to die. That's what they deserve. Mm. You know, God doesn't, you know, immediately collect on that debt, so to speak, and he gives the person every chance to repent and to change. But Maimonides says that if a person is given so many chances and they keep on, uh, you know, playing the system and, you know, and making a mockery of it, uh, like Pharaoh did, then Maimonides says that God will take away their potential for, mm-hmm. for repenting. He'll just remove it as a, as a possibility. But that is so rare. That's so unusual. Usually, um, you know, it seems like the, the morality of the Tanakh is that that's God's preferred option is that people sure. change. And I think that, that, that because we're supposed to follow in the ways of God, that we're told that in the book of Deuteronomy, we're supposed to walk in the ways of God. So I think that ideally our prayer should always be for wicked people to repent. Mm. Now, and, you know, and, to be, and to be fair, sorry, Michael, but to be fair, uh, it, I am reminded of Ezekiel chapter 18, and God does say, uh, and in the last verse of 18, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who sins, therefore turn and live. There you go. Yes. Fair well, enough. It's a, it's a, and it says that many times in chapter 18 of mm-hmm. Ezekiel. So, um, now, obviously, if we're talking about a war situation and someone's about to, you know, shoot you, you know, you have an obligation there mm. to, you know, protect yourself. Mm. And so, you know, except for that kind of situation where your life's at stake and, you know, if you could sit, sit and start praying for the person, your head's going to be moved <laughs> sure. from your shoulders. Right. But otherwise, you know, our prayer should always be um, – for people to repent and change. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, th- that's pretty much throughout the Tanakh. Um, now, I don't know how we got on to this. Oh, well, we're talking about the, uh, the, the strong, very strong language that David chooses to use here. And as we mentioned before, he's setting up a contrast and it does change in uh, verse 8. He, he, he paints these people, you know, there are these people and you hate them, God. Uh, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. I fear you, and I will worship towards your holy temple, Michael. Yeah, he obviously now, as you said, he's contrasting himself to all these wicked people he's been describing. And uh, the first chief rabbi of the modern state of Israel, Rav Avraham Yitzchak Kuk, 
had a very interesting question that he raised on this particular verse. Um, Cook says that, you know, again, you could look at this verse as another parallelism mm-hmm. where when it speaks about, um, uh, I will enter into your house is the first phrase. And then it says, I'll prostrate myself towards your holy sanctuary. So you could say that it's really speaking about the same thing. Um, Rav Cook tries to distinguish between house and sanctuary. And he says that in general, house, even when human beings speak about their house, that, you know, it's a, a man's home is his castle. Mm. So Rav Cook says that when you speak about someone's house, it's sort of their territory, it's their castle, it's where they're in control. And, um, you know, so he says that when you speak about God's house, you're really thinking about the idea that God um, is the ruler, right? Because if, if the house is where you control things, so really it's the idea that God rules the entire world. God's mm-hmm. in charge of everything in the world. And he contrasts that to the sanctuary, the inner sanctuary, which is not so much God being the ruler and in charge of everything, but it's much more of a private place of intimacy. Um, it, it's a place not so much of control and governing, but a place of majesty and honor. And uh, it's like a special, a special beautiful place. Mm. And what Rav Cook suggests is that normally when you think about these two kind of places, you would associate – the first place, the idea of a house that the owner is in control of, and he says the parallel would be God, God's house, meaning God as the one that governs and rules the entire world, you would think that the feeling that's associated with that, you know, to enter into a place like that would be fear, would be yira, awe, right? And mm. you're submitting to God's reign over the world. But he says that when you think about, you know, the beauty and the, 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 the special love of you know this special inner sanctuary where you're drawing close to God in His inner sanctuary, that would seem to be more associated with the feelings of love of ahava. And he says that interestingly, the verse reverses it. The verse here speaks about um, coming into God's house um, with chesed. Chesed is loving kindness. Mm. So, it, and it associates the y- fear or yira with going into his inner sanctum. Mm. So, he says it's really strange that the verse seems to take the opposite way in which we would look at, you know, house versus inner sanctum and the ideas of loving kindness and fear and awe. And he says something interesting. He says to resolve this, he says that there are two different kinds of people. He says there's a normal kind of person um, for which, you know, the way I described love and loving kindness and mm-hmm. fear and awe are exactly the way I express them. But he says that there are people who are on a higher level. And he says that people on a higher level, people that I guess are uh, much, much closer to God and much, much more in tune with God, so they understand that when God runs the world, everything is really loving kindness, meaning that God's running of the world, and normally, I guess what he's saying is that normal people, when they think about the king and the governor and the ruler, you know, they think about, you know, uh, something that's 
strict and orderly and there's laws and you know you have to be a little bit afraid he says that the person who's tuned into god understands that god's entire running of the world is for the sake of loving kindness meaning mm-hmm. that even though you don't always see it you sometimes see god is being strict with people and god is is uh, having to enforce the law and god is having to sometimes you know lay down the law and treat people strictly um, and sometimes nature seems to be, you know, unmerciful, and life itself sometimes seems to be unmerciful. He says, but the the person that's close to God understands that everything, in terms of God's providence, is an act of loving kindness. Everything is flowing from God's intense love for the world and desire to give to the world. We don't always see how everything that we're getting is love and giving, but that's God's agenda. Mm. And he says that that's why when David here speaks about entering into God's house, it's it's connecting with the loving kindness that's there, not with the connecting with the ruler and the, and the dread and awe and fear of being in that place. But then he says, once that person gets closer to God and closer to God, um, you know, closer into the inner sanctum of this house, so to speak, they're sort of overcome with this, not fear, but this incredible awe that, they, that they're just struck in, with the awesomeness of how loving God is. Mm. You know, there's different kinds of fear. There's fear of punishment. There's fear of, you know, getting hurt. But then there's awe. A person is just awed by God's greatness. So he says that the often you'll see this. For example, um, in Jewish prayer, we often begin addressing God in the second person. We speak about you. We literally speak to God in the second person, you, and then we immediately sort of recoil and we speak now in the third person about God, because you get very, very close, and sometimes you know you have to back off in a way, mm-hmm. um, because we almost human beings can't handle. The intensity of that. And so, the, the person on David's level, he comes into this understanding of how God's running of the world and his providence is pure loving kindness. And that recognition leads him to an incredibly high sense of how awesome God is. And that's why the second verse about God's inner sanctum is tied up with, connected to the idea of, of awe, of fear. Mm. Fear is not a good word there. No, no, or it would be, would be better. In awe of you, I will worship yes. towards your holy temple. It continues, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before my face. And I suppose that's, is that just really a way of saying, tell me, make it obvious what I should be doing here. What should I do? Well, this is really, it's interesting. When you go to the heart of this psalm, I mean, I, I mentioned that this psalm is all about prayer. Well, this is the real heart of David's request, meaning that this is really the the bullseye of what he's really mm-hmm. praying for in this psalm, which is, God, guide me in your righteousness. Keep me on the straight path. Mm-hmm. Don't allow me to stumble. Because he's saying that his enemies, you know, are just praying that he's going to stumble or they're trying to arrange that he's going to stumble. Mm. And so, he wants to basically stay close to God. He wants to stay on the path of righteousness. And he, um, you know, that's what he's praying for. And what's interesting, the Hebrew here is very beautiful because he he prays that God um, guide him in righteousness. He says, why? Because of my watchful enemies. 
because they're you know uh, wishing that he'll be led mm. astray. He'll be, and but the word for enemies here is shorarai, shorarai. But the next verse, the next uh, phrase says, "Make your way straight before me, Hushar." And the words are very, very similar, shorarai, enemies, and it's sort of contrasted to hushar, make your way straight, like yashar, before me. Um, So there's sort of this, almost a play on words Mm -hmm. between the enemies and what David is praying for, that his prayer, and it's interesting again, because we didn't really understand at first the context of this psalm, what are the prayers all about? And so here you see that his prayer for being maintained in the straight and narrow is a response to the people who were trying to get him off of that path. Mm. So this this uh, verse here, verse 9, also helps us understand really the broader context of this psalm. Mm. Because they're watching also, because they're, they're watching enemies, waiting for him to trip up and rejoice when he does so. Uh, and he's asking God, "No, make make my way, my way, your way, and and may it be straight that I don't trip up." That's 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 his major concern, yeah. exactly. And then it turns again; it turns back to his enemies. It says in the next couple of uh, verses, "For there is no faithfulness in their mouth; uh, their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God." Let them fall by their own counsels, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you, Michael. Well, I think that you were going to point out that this is one of the places in this psalm where there's a uh, citation there is. by Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 13, Paul does quote uh, at least the first part here. Uh, saying that there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is destruction, uh, their throat is an open tomb. In fact, I'll go so that I'm not, good heavens, uh, that I don't misquote Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Paul chapter 3 in the New Testament, verse 13, uh, he quotes, that. Th- oh, this is where he picks up, their throat is an open tomb, uh, with their tongue they have practiced deceits, and, uh, and that is a... Uh, I guess a, um, a paraphrase, almost a quote of what we've just read. The difference, though, um, Michael, as I've just pointed out, uh, David has turned it, turned it back around and talked about specifically about his enemies, they, them, there. Uh, he's talking about what Paul does is he actually applies it to uh, humankind and uh, applying this quote-unquote total depravity, if you like. Yeah, I mean, the the... the- the, the general theme there in chapter 3 of Romans is Paul's contention that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Mm. And, you know, when we get to Psalm 14 in, in a few mm. weeks, that's where he's quoting. But you're right that he continues to, to quote other uh, verses from the book of Psalms to, to sort of support his contention that everyone is wicked, everyone is evil. And so he's using this phrase from Psalm number five here as part of his uh, case, part of his brief to prove that everybody is wicked, everybody's, you know, evil, they're, you know, they're just all bad. And what you see in verse, in, in this chapter in general uh, of Psalms, chapter five here, very clearly, I mean, is, this is not uh, at all something which is mysterious. It's very clear that in this psalm, we've been seeing a contrast 
of the righteous with the wicked. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have the, the, the righteous mentioned explicitly in verse 13. Um, you know, I think last week, last time we d- saw that uh, David refers to himself as chassid, mm. as pious. But here you actually have the word tzaddik, righteous. Mm. Um, and so, th- this psalm is very clearly a psalm where David has been contrasting the righteous with the wicked. Mm. He's been contrasting those who rebel against God versus those who take refuge in God. Um, and so, you know, what Paul is doing is basically ripping these phrases out of context where these are phrases about those particular people who rebel against God, those mm. particular people who are wicked, and, and giving the impression that, no, that's everybody on the planet. That's everybody on the uh, planet because in verse uh, of Romans chapter 3, in verse 9, it says, uh, for they are all under sin as it is written, and then he goes on to, with, with a uh, handful of quotes here, and uh, misapplying them. Now, the interesting thing, Michael, I find it interesting, is that the study note in my New King James study version uh, of Psalm chapter 5, verse 10 that we've just read, uh, it says, their throat is an open tomb. These words describe the perverse language used by the people in opposition to God. Well, that's that's fair enough. That's what David, uh, that's the way that David is using it. It goes on to say in the uh, study note, Paul uses the words of these verses to argue for the depravity of all people. Well, shouldn't there be a little red flag there? <laughs> well, I think that's a very honest study note. It is an honest study note. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, the, the reader of the, of the uh, letters of Paul um, sort of, you know, that, 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 that distinction is lost on them because, mm. you know, you have, you know, the official doctrine of at least some Protestant denominations, you know, the, the ones that adhere to the idea of tulip, mm-hmm. right? Calvinist. So, the tea and tulip is total depravity. Mm. Um, they, they don't say it's, it's a depravity of those who rebel against God. It's literally applied to every single human being that's born. Um, so, if they only had access to that study note in your Bible, you know, they, they wouldn't have the tea and tulip. They'd have to believe in ulip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's uh, really, a, there's no legitimacy. There's no, there's no uh, you know, basis for that claim mm. that every single person, because again, David makes it very clear in this psalm that there are those who are not like these wicked people. There are those who are actually people who embrace God, they take refuge in God, and they're actually called righteous. Mm. Now, I, I, this one other thing I wanted to point out, which I was a little bit bothered by, uh, I'm not sure I have a great answer to this, but after describing all these people, um, in verse 12, David um, it goes even a little bit further, and he says, But all who take refuge in you mm-hmm. will rejoice. Forever they will sing joyfully, and you will shelter them. They who love your name will exult in you. Um, it's not really clear um, what they're rejoicing about. But you could say that, you know, by this time, uh, you know, he's speaking about rejoicing in the downfall of the wicked. Um, because obviously that's what he's been praying for here. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we have a verse, and I'm just trying to remember where that is, that says, do not rejoice in the downfall of the wicked. And and that brings us to the distinction of 
there are some verses that, that give one indication and other verses that give another indication. And in, in my own study of this, it seems to be th- that separation is between uh, the enemies of Israel and a fellow Israelite that, that you have um, um, that maybe uh, you have an argument with, you have a bone to pick, you have differences with that become your enemy for whatever reason. You don't rejoice at the down, at the uh, at the demise of of, uh, of your brother, but certainly with uh, nations that come against you, perhaps this is um, a fair a fair call. Michael, what do you? I'm think? I'm not so sure. I mean, the, the verse that you're referring to is in Proverbs twenty four seventeen, uh-huh. which says, "Binapola oivecha altismach." When your enemy falls, don't rejoice. Um, but, you know, the way the, the rabbis and the sages understand this is that it would apply uh, even to the enemies of Israel. The, the, the famous example, um, you know, at the Passover Seder, for example. Hmm. Um, so, when we recite the ten plagues, the, the part of the, the Passover meal, we actually recite each of the ten plagues. The custom is to put your finger into the cup of wine and take out a drop of wine for each of the plagues, because it says in the Bible, I think it's in the book of Psalms actually, Yayin Yismach Levavenosh, that wine rejoices the heart of man. And so they say that we don't rejoice in the fact that the Egyptians suffered in these plagues. And the Midrash goes on to say that when they were crossing the Red Sea, mm. Um, it says that the angels wanted to sing praises to God um, upon the drowning of the Egyptians. And God stopped them. And God says in the Midrash that my creatures are drowning in the water and you want to sing praises to me? So, um, and, and because of that, by the way, you know, the, the, the custom is that on Jewish holidays we recite um, a series of psalms called Hallel, the great praises to God. Um, there are a number of chapters, I think, starting in chapter 112 or 113, mm-hmm. I forget the exact beginning, but we sing songs of praise to God. Um, but during the last days of Passover, which was when the Egyptians were actually drowning, we don't say the entire Hallel. We diminish it, um, meaning that we sort of curtail our singing um, to God because we don't rejoice when our enemies are falling. And these are, these are not Jewish enemies. These are not Jewish opponents. Um, so, the, the, it seems that, at least from a rabbinic point of view, mm. this, this even applies to you know, lethal enemies, non-Jewish enemies that are attacking us. We don't rejoice when they fall. I, so, I, I have to interrupt because I, <laughs> I'm just, I'm not persuaded. I, I mean, one of the things that we are to uh, commit to heart is the Song of Moses, which of course is followed up in um, uh, Exodus chapter 15 with the Song of Miriam. And we have, I mean, how we understand what you've just said in, in uh with this, I mean, the horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Uh, it goes on to say, I mean, uh, even uh, the song of Miriam, uh, they took timbrels and they were dancing. And uh, and the song said, uh, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider, he has thrown into the sea. Michael. Yeah, so I, I bothered by that in terms of this psalm here, meaning that when David says in verse 12, that um, we're going to rejoice, all those who take refuge in God. And again, it's, it's not spelling out what we're rejoicing in, but if it is rejoicing in the downfall of the wicked, 
So I do see that as problematic. And, you know, the only way I can maybe split hairs here, and I'm not saying this is a good answer, is that it could be that the rejoicing is primarily upon their salvation, meaning it's that we've been saved, we've been rescued. They're not rejoicing so much primarily in the destruction of the wicked. They're rejoicing primarily in their salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, you're right that the words I mean, she, that, that Miriam is speaking about, look, they've been drowned in the water. Um, so, I guess it would be a question of what is the focus, meaning the focus is on you know, how they're getting their just desserts or how we're being rescued and saved here. And so, the only way that I'm, at least at this point, able to reconcile this is that what we can celebrate and rejoice in is when God rescues us and saves us and helps us, Mm. but that when people, human beings, are dying and suffering, we shouldn't rejoice in that. Now, Uh, now, is it fair, though, to uh, also interpret this as uh, let those rejoice who have put that now let them let them have a life of, of rejoicing can we say that let them because he says he goes on to say let them ever shout for joy because you uh, have defended them uh, let those who love your name be joyful can it not just be a a, a general disposition of, of of joy and and happiness and gladness and and, and rejoicing uh, because uh, because of the situation that, that he has put them in, uh, can it not be that? Does it have yes. to be specific to I, I think I, th- I think that would sort of, you know, do away with the problem I'm raising. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's not clear that the rejoicing is uh, as a result of the downfall of their enemies. It could be that the rejoicing is simply because we trust in God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- that what are we rejoicing about? Rejoicing about the fact that we've we sought refuge in God it's, one, it's obviously one of the major themes in the entire book of Psalms, right? That, you know, in Psalm 23, the famous psalm, you know, that, you know, I'll, I'll never be afraid because God is with me. So, the fact that I'm taking refuge in God, you know, I do feel great. I'm able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and mm. fear no one because I feel close to God. And in Psalm 55, where David says, you know, cast your burden upon God, that when people have that kind of relationship with God, where they cast their burdens upon God, they take refuge in God, they feel God is with them, they can live a very happy and fulfilled and content and joyous life. Mm. So, you're right. If, if we're going to read the, the verse like that, then, you know, we're not discussing the down, you know, rejoicing over the downfall mm. of enemies. Mm. And then that, that, that concern would go away. And and it's fair too because in the uh, in the final verse, uh, I think it lends to that idea as well because it says, "For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous." The righteous, and that's true. There's blessing in obedience, and and uh, for one who rejoices in God is obedient, and therefore he blesses them, uh, those who are righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Right now, again, you can read this both ways. That it could be speaking about simply the blessing of living a godly life and living a life in relationship with with God. But it it could be that this verse is a contrast to what's going to happen to the wicked, meaning that, that, you know, here it's speaking about the righteous being blessed. Now, the contrast would be what's going to happen to the wicked, the exact opposite. You know, they're going to be cursed and they're going to have a life Mm -hmm. of misery. Mm -hmm. Instead of being protected and favored like a shield where they're enveloped, 
by the way, the, the particular shield here, the Tsina, it was really a large shield that would enclose the person on three sides from head to toe. So they were literally enwrapped in this shield, mm-hmm. and they felt as close, it was a symbol of being close to God, whereas the wicked person that this is contrasted to, you know, is going to be cast out. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it, the way the rabbis even understand it is that they speak about um, you know, the two personifications here, or Doeg and Achitofel, are not going to even have a share in the world to come. They're going to basically be cut off from God. So it's, it's, it's even worse than, you know, being killed. They're going to have no future in the eternity. And so, you know, it, it, it's not really clear here, to me at least, whether these um, verses are speaking about... Um, you know, specifically the, the, the general joy and blessing of having a relationship with God. And it's really not necessarily contrasted to what the fate of the wicked will be. Mm-hmm. Or it could be here for the effect of contrasting it with the wicked who are going to have, you know, misery as opposed to blessing. Um, and then that would sort of go back to verse 12 and sort of put us back in that questionable situation of do we really rejoice in the downfall of the wicked? Mm. All of that to a sitar. There it is. <laughs> the droning bees. The droning bees. The, the, the swarm of droning bees. <laughs> Thank you, my friend, for coming back on the truth to you. Uh, Psalm chapter 5 will be continuing, uh, obviously, with Psalm chapter 6 in the very near future. Once again, Rabbi Michael Skobeck of Jews for Judaism.ca. That is the website, Jews for Judaism in Canada. And as I mentioned, dear listeners, go to the uh, YouTube Uh, of Jews for Judaism and see what they have to offer. There is a plethora of information, quality information and viewing there. So once again, Rabbi Michael Skobach, thank you for returning to Exploring Psalms. It's great to be here with you. Psalm chapter 6 next time. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed, be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.